Welcome to the podcast of the Notre Dame Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. I'm Philip Munoz, the Center Director. The Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government here at Notre Dame aims to explore the fundamental principles and practices of a free society so that citizens and civic leaders are equipped to secure our God-given natural rights, exercise the responsibilities of self-government, and pursue the common good. For more information about the Center, including our events, visit us on the web at constudies.nd.edu. Enjoy today's podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Vincent Philip Munoz. I'm the director of the Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government, and it's uh, my pleasure to welcome you to uh, this afternoon's lecture. Um, a couple thank yous before we uh, introduce uh, our speaker. Um, first, to the Ansari Institute uh, and uh, Mahan Amirtha. Thank you very much for co-sponsoring, and Gabe Reynolds, Gabe, uh, and the World Religions and World Church Program uh, in the uh, Notre Dame Theology Department. So this lecture is uh, presented by all three uh, programs, and thank you very much to my colleagues for co-sponsoring uh, today's lecture. Uh, a couple of announcements. Um, no, I should also thank Dan Philpot too, for helping organize this. Thank you, Dan. Um, the center has a, a few events coming up. Uh, I'd like to invite you to on October 11th. Uh, we have Josh Hammer. We're co-sponsoring this with the Federalist Society. Should be quite interesting. He's going to be speaking on common good constitutionalism. Uh, that's on uh, Monday, October 11th. And then after fall break, we have uh, Stanford law professor Michael McConnell, um, really one of the major figure, figures in uh, the legal academy. Uh, he has a new book out on executive power and the Constitution. Uh, so join us for that. That will be on Tuesday, October 26th. Um, that will be a Zoom event, uh, I should note, as well. And then uh, about a month from today, uh, at the end of October, on October 28 and 29, the Center is sponsoring a uh, two-day conference on the Reconstruction Amendments. That's the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. We have some distinguished historians, uh, law professors, and federal judges coming uh, to campus for two days um, there's, uh, to examine the original meaning and uh, subsequent development of those amendments. Uh, our keynote address is going to be by um, a very distinguished historian, Laura Edwards, and that will be on Thursday, um, Thursday October 28th. So join us for uh, our future events uh, as well. Um, let me add, I've been, re I've been uh, reading the reopening, uh, reopening Muslim Minds over the last few days, and it's just a terrific book. I'm very excited about uh, today's lecture. Um, we have a tradition at the program, which you know, which is we ask our undergraduate, uh, one of our undergraduate uh, student fellows to introduce our speaker. Uh, so Blake Perry, uh, finance major, if memory serves me right, and a constitutional studies minor. What year are you, Blake? Junior. Blake's a junior. Uh, he'll introduce our speaker. Blake? Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Our speaker today is Mustafa Akiol, a Turkish author and journalist and senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. He graduated from Boise Chi University and earned his master's degree there in history as well with a thesis on Turkey's Kurdish question. Mr. Akiol's scholarship focuses on the intersection of public policy, Islam, and modernity. Since 2013, he has been a frequent opinion writer for the New York Times as well as a regular contributor for many Turkish publications. Recently, the Prospect Magazine of the UK listed him among the world's top 50 thinkers. He has published a number of books, including Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty in 2011, 
the Islamic Jesus, how the kind of the Jews became a prophet of the Muslims in 2017, and most recently, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance, published this year. The topic of his lecture today is Islam, Freedom, and Natural Law, Ancient Wisdom for a New Enlightenment. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Mustafa Akil. Good evening, assalamu alaikum, and I hope you're all well, and thank you so much for joining. And uh, let me thank my good friends, uh, good old friends, Daniel Philpott and uh, Gabriel Said Reynolds and Vincent Minos for really conspiring together to bring me to Notre Dame again, which is a great pleasure. I remember being here uh, four years ago. Uh, I see great friends uh, like Ibrahim Musa, whose works have been really enlightening, and who graciously wrote a blur for my book, by the way. I should. Thank you once again for that. And now, the intersection of Islam and freedom has been a passion for me that I've been studying uh, for about 20 years at least, both academically and a bit adventurously. And uh, on that letter note, like uh, I'll share an adventure about that, which I actually use in the beginning of my book as an introduction story, which can put things in place a little bit. Uh, in, uh, in 2017, I was then as a, as a visiting fellow at the Wellesley College in Massachusetts, and I got an invitation to visit Kuala Lumpur to speak at public venues like this. Uh, I was invited by the Islamic Renaissance Front, which is an Islamic organization in Malaysia that is dedicated to bring the ideas of human rights and religious freedom to the Malaysian public square with arguments from Islam itself. And they had published my book, Islam Without Extremes in Malay. They had they had invited me already four times. I mean, with, with them, I already visited Malaysia four times before. So I said, again, well, it's the end of the world, the other end of the world, but okay, I'll go. So I, I went there, and there were these, uh, there were these public events um, uh, in venues in Kuala Lumpur. And the second event was a little bit of a sensitive one. And the Islamic Renaissance Front told me, like, hopefully nothing's going to come out of this, but be careful of it, okay? Because it was on the issue of apostasy. Uh, which is, uh, you know, renouncing your religion and choosing another faith or, you know, becoming an atheist, right? So, uh, and in the Islamic term is that, for that is ridda, although there are good reasons to think that it was more connected to political rebellion than, uh, you know, giving up the faith, but these th things somehow got conflated. So anyway, I gave this 30-minute lecture uh, to a predominantly Muslim audience, and I said, we Muslims don't want to see anybody leave Islam, so we want them to be believers. That's, that's a good intention. But if they lost it, you know, there is nothing we can do with coercion. Uh, first of all, it's, it goes against reason. I mean, you can't really achieve anything about that. Second, uh, it goes against the Quran. I mean, there's a, there, are, there are certain verses in the Quran, and I think the most oft-quoted one is, uh, Baqarah 256, which re begins by saying la ikraha fi din, which means there is no compulsion in religion. Truth is, you know, separated from error, but, but so there is no compulsion, people can see it. And I refer to arguments by scholars who are saying actually the ban on apostasy comes from political rebellion rather than what we understand as changing your religion today. So I said we should not, you know, do anything about it. And the thing is, Malaysians are moderate on this. Because like in, in Saudi Arabia and Iran, they have death penalty for apostasy. 
Malaysians are moderate, so they're not executing people, but they're sending, to, sending them to rehabilitation centers. And I said, we shouldn't do that either, right? I mean, and at the end, I said, if people don't believe in religion, you can't coerce it, you can't police religion. That's like a punchline. I, I said that, and people applauded, and you know, uh, I was just ready to leave, and some five serious gentlemen walked in, and they said, are you Mustafa Akil? They said, yes. And they said, uh, we heard that you say religion cannot be policed. I said, yes. They said, we are the religion police. <laughs> <laughs> so they showed me their badges, identity cards. And their job is literally religion enforcement officer. That's how they're <laughs> defined. And they said, well, we'll ask you a few questions. And I said, OK. And they asked me you know, questions. They took me into a part of the building. And they took my photo. I don't know. Something's going on. They said, OK, we will watch your video, then let you know about the next steps. I said, like, OK, I wonder what those steps are. But I didn't think it was a big deal. But next morning, I woke up uh, in my Kuala Lumpur hotel, and I heard that they summoned me to the headquarters, religious police headquarters, to be uh, to give my testimony to a prosecutor. And my hosts from the Islamic Renaissance Front, they said, well, you know, don't get into that. You know, you have a flight tonight, just leave. We will deal with this through lawyers, and you can write a testimony later on, uh, through a written letter or something like that. I said, OK. So I spent the day, and actually we went uh, to the, I went to the airport. I got my boarding pass. I came to the passport control smiling, and when the lady saw my name, she stopped smiling and she said, wait, sir, you, there's something. And then she called some people and they called other people. And so ultimately, I was arrested there because the religious police apparently issued an arrest order uh, on my behalf. And I, was, I waited there for a few hours. Javi, the religious police, came and they said, you violated the law which bans teaching without permission from the state, the authorities, Tevliya. Uh, this actually was a law about teaching in mosques, but in this case, that extended to an academic conference, which was an unusual thing, actually. And they said, the, the punishment for this is two years in jail. So we will arrest you tonight, and tomorrow you'll be taken to the court. Uh, I said, like, I came here for conference. Like, I wasn't, it was a bad night. So they did arrest me. They, they took me to a police station, you know, got all your belongings, your money, or something. And, so I was locked at the headquarters of the of Javi in Kuala Lumpur, religious headquarters. Next morning, I was taken to a court. There was a it was a Sharia court, um, and there was a big bearded scholar uh, and some officers. For two hours, they questioned me, and ultimately, they let me go. And I appreciate that part. <laughs> I said thank you. I mean, I, when they say we release you, I said you know, Jazakallah khairan, you know, Allah be okay. Thank you so much for this. So they did let me go, so I did get on the flight. So it's not as bad as what people go through sometimes in Iran or Saudi Arabia, where you know horrible things happen. People stay in jail for years, or China or North Korea. So, uh, but one thing was interesting, and that was thanks to some diplomacy, which I tell in my book. But you know, I'm not getting into that. So I was lucky for a few reasons. One thing was interesting to me. Uh, one, once I was getting ready for the flight, like I was during the interrogation, they asked me a few times. So, did you quote recite La Ikraha Fiddin, No Compulsion in Religion? I said, Yes. Like, what's the problem? And during getting on the flight, while I was just ready at the airport for the second oh, nice flight, <laughs> and I was saying, Why are they obsessed with me? quoting that Ikrahafiddin, there's no compulsion in religion. 
And I said, like, let me see how they interpret that. And I went into the website of Jakim, that is the religious ministry to which the religious police is tied. And I saw there, I checked the English translation, and I saw there what I suspected, which I had seen in some Saudi translations as well. There was a little parenthesis in the words. So there is no compulsion in religion, it goes like that. But no, no, they insert a few words into it. So there is no compulsion in parentheses while entering Islam, right? So, and it makes a big difference, right? Because to say there is no compulsion in religion means, well, you are free to believe in religion or maybe not. Actually, there's a Quran, Nick verse, which says the truth is from your Lord. Let anyone who want to believe it, let anyone who want to disbelieve it. So it's actually quite resonant with that. And it can also mean if you're a Muslim, well, you're, you can practice your religion in the way you believe. But if you say there is no compulsion only while entering Islam, it means, well, you can enter, but you cannot leave. You know, Malaysian liberals joke about it. They say it's Hotel California, right? You can check, but you can never leave. Young generation will not know that song, but my generation would know. Um, plus, you are under the authority of the religion police. Like, that's why when you uh, eat in Ramadan in the middle of the street, you know, the police can come and, you know, discipline you because you're, you're supposed to fast. Of course, you're supposed to fast. That's far from Islamically, but is it between you and God? But it's also religious police have a say on that. So the reason there is a religion police is that, you know, they think, you know, it should be monitored because they believe in Hispa, which they understand as religious policing and... And of course, the Taliban does it in more effective and brutal ways, and that's a big you know, issue we're discussing in, in the modern world today. So to me, that was a glimpse of a broader problem uh, that we have to address as Muslims, uh, Muslims who care about their faith in the modern world, and that is we have a tension between certain interpretations of Islam and the idea of individual freedom. Uh, no believer would deny that you know, religion brings obligations to us. Like, I don't fast, like, I don't eat pork, that's my fate. But is it my fate that is driving me to, towards that practice? Or is it also some external force? Is there some public authority over, uh, over me? So this is a major issue, and this was a major issue for Christianity, too. And I think my Catholic friends here <laughs> would know that, you know, that there was a time that Religious freedom was not very much welcomed in, in certain interpretations of Christianity, but there has been a big change on that, and I think that's been a positive change. And I think we are at the birth pangs of a similar change in Islam, like a full appreciation of the idea of freedom. And I think it's a good way, by the way, good thing, by the way. But to be able to make this argument in the first place, I mean, there are a lot of textual issues. I mean, uh, the, the Quranic words, la ikrafidin, there's no compulsion in religion, which is, by the way, understood in different ways. But there are similar verses in the Quran that emphasize that religion should not be coerced. One of them is, to you, your religion, and to me, mine. But you will also find Islamic interpretations in the traditional jurisprudence or tafsir exegesis. will say, well, these verses are actually abrogated. Or, well, there, this verse says this, but there's this hadith which says, kill the apostates, whoever, kill whomever he leaves his religion. That's why we're actually putting this parenthesis here. So there are grounds for making the argument that it should be restrained. So we should make a sense of this. And my book is an effort and a combination of all the efforts and thoughts and ideas that I've, uh, and, and you know, research I, I brought 
uh, into one single volume uh, on this big issue. And I'd rely on the studies of great scholars like Ibrahim Musa or Khalid Abu Fadl or Fazlur Rahman. And you know, we have a lot of great theologians and thinkers and jurists since the 19th century who's been dealing with these issues. And I'm trying to just put them in one accessible volume that you know, everybody can relate to. But one thing, this is an endless issue of jurisprudence. That's fiqh. Like that's the interpretation of sharia, right? But over time, I've also come to is this the religious police in, in Notre Dame? Like, hopefully not, right? Like, great. Over the years, I've come to uh, think that, realize that, you know, there are, juris beyond jurisprudence, there's a layer beneath that, and that's theology, even philosophy. So there are, we have to address those issues as well, which brought me to a discussion of natural law. Now, I'll tell you one thing. The title says Islam, Freedom, and Natural Law. Uh, natural law is not a common term you will find in the Islamic tradition. Muslims have not been discussing natural law. Actually, the first time I heard it in a conference, uh, somebody asked me, what's the place of natural law in Islam? That was like 15 years ago. I said, like, gravity? What are we talking about? Like, so what does that mean? I mean, I've never heard that. Doal uh, hukuk or tabi hukuk. Some actually Ottoman liberals discuss this. People like Nami Kemal try to actually see it as sharia of the non-Muslims because something about the government. So there is that element. So there are approaches about it, but not in Islamic jurisprudence. You don't find much discussion of it. But this doesn't mean that there have not been Muslim thinkers who actually had a sense that there are human values that are universal and might help us interpret our faith. Now, I'll try to give a few snapshots from that interesting aspect, which is in the Islamic tradition, although which has not been cultivated enough, if you ask me. And that's why we have the Javi or the Taliban or the you know, Wahhabi Mutawa and, 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 and the Iranian uh, I don't know, regime and, and so on and so forth. The Shiites and how they look into reason is an interesting story by itself. I mean, we can get into that. Actually, they have, I'll get into that later. Okay. I want to tell you about a book. So this is actually the, so I told you the introduction of the book, this is the first chapter. And it's a book that is very interesting. It, it had an impact on world history, also a lot of people forgot about it. But it's people who look into it find it fascinating. So this is a book published in the year 1671 in England uh, by a professor at Oxford University named uh, Edward Pocock. He was actually the son of a father who had the exact same name. And his father had found this manuscript in Syria, in Aleppo, where he was working for the Levant Company, and brought it here. So his son translated the book and published it. It was titled Philosophis, Philosophis Autodidactus. Sorry, my Latin isn't even terrible. It doesn't exist, but you know, that's So this is how it looked. This was the cover. OK. Uh, you can see the title there, Philosophies Autodidactus, and Hype uh, in Yoktan, that's the original name of the book. So that is actually, because this was the Latin translation of an Arabic manuscript, an Arabic novel, which was a philosophical novel, and actually many people think it's the first philosophical novel ever written. It actually was written in 12th century Spain, but it was republished, I mean, it was translated into Latin 
uh, by po Edward Pocock in, in, in 1671. The book sold like hotcakes. It ran out of print. Several reprints came. Philosophers, scientists, diplomats, they all read the book and loved the book. Uh, several editions in other languages came. One of them was by Simon Ockley. Uh, the improvement of human reason. I can't even see that that far. Uh, on the story of Hype in Yachtan. And this was, this was in English in 1708. And this is an edition I used in my book. And also, there are some interesting engravings in it that I'll share. Then also came other editions by a translation was made by a Catholic vicar and then a Quaker, which I will come back to. It's an interesting point. And the book inspired certainly Baruch Spinoza, who, who loved the book and promoted a Dutch edition of it. And then uh, Leibniz, one of the thinkers of the Enlightenment, Robert Boyle. And as we think, some people think uh, John Locke has, has read the book, liked the book, and may have been inspired uh, from it in some of his ideas. Uh, we also uh, think that, historians also think that the book may have influenced Daniel Defoe, who wrote the first English novel, Robinson Crusoe. Now, the connection there is actually pretty clear because both books are about a lone man living on a, you know, island, deserted island. So it's, Haibin Yaksan was just like Robinson Crusoe, but he came like six centuries ago, and his story is a bit more different and, you know, theological. So what's the story? The story is that there is this, so Hay ibn Yaksan, written by Ibn Tufail, Muslim philosopher Ibn Tufail, in uh, Spain in the, in, the, in the 12th century. I always mix centuries. 12th century. Uh, this was a novel of a boy that comes on an island by himself and starts to grow without any human being, any society, any, any religion, any tradition. How the boy comes to life, we don't know that. There are two options. Maybe he came as a part of a spontaneous generation, which is not very likely, I think, in our scientific knowledge today. But or maybe the mother left him, like baby Moses, on a basket and they came through, the, uh, through accidentally through the sea. But anyway, this boy comes to life on this island and starts to live. How does he live? Well, luckily, a gazelle adopts him and uh, suckles him. So this is Mother the Roe, the gazelle. So the boy knows the, uh, the gazelle as the mother. And he discovers the animals around him, and he's curious, and, and he loves the mother. At age seven, uh, the gazelle gets old and finally dies. And, and High is sad, and you know, he wants to do something. He wants to bring the gazelle back to life. And he does something which was a taboo in, uh, in, in the pre-modern age, often. That's an uh, autopsy. You know, he uses a like a stone to dissect the body and opens up. He can't bring the gazelle back to life. And here you see a drawing of that in Simon Ockley's book. He can't bring the gazelle back to life. But with that, he learns how the heart and the blood and the, and the anatomy works. Then through reasoning, he thinks that his body must be the same. So he starts to understand how bodies work. Then he starts to observe other animals, and he develops a whole science of biology. He classifies animals into species and, and, and you know, uh, understands how their body works and you know, all their differences. Hai grows up and he becomes a, he just, he just, he's done with biology, but he starts to look into the skies and he looks into the heavenly bodies and the motions and the planets and he starts to figure out how they work and their laws, their laws of motion. Then he starts to think, 
there must be a creator of all these things. So he finds that there is a God. He becomes a natural theologian. Then uh, he starts to think, was the universe created ex nihilo? Or you know, was it actually just, does it emanate from God, God being the prime mover, right? And if you know about your Aristotle a little bit, you know, you know that this was a big debate among Muslims. Because just a few decades before this uh, Haib in Yaksan, Imam al-Ghazali, who's a great Sunni theologian, who had great ideas, and you know, he had a few harsh verdicts on, on the philosophers, one harsh verdict on the philosophers, because the Aristotelian philosophers in Islam, which actually this book is trying to save and advance, bought into the idea of a uncreated world, but still God is there, so how do we make a sense of this? Oh, God is the prime mover. So that was the way that they, they looked into this issue. Haibin Yaksan, our friend in the novel, says, well, both are possible. You know, maybe God created ex nihilo, maybe the other one. None of them are kufr, like none of them are disbelief, right? Which, because the philosophers were condemned for kufr on this issue. Uh, so he makes these ideas and he's become a, one more important thing. He becomes a wise person. High develops a sense of ethics. And I think that's the key issue here. Uh, he's an ethical person. How does it come out? There are no human beings on the island. Well, he's ethical to animals. He stops eating animals and becoming a vegetarian. He doesn't want to hurt the animals. Even for plants, he cares about them. So when he eats plants, he preserves their seeds. And when he eats plants, again, he's careful not to destroy a species, so he eats those which are abundant. So he's a kind of an environmentalist, if you will. He's a wise, ethical, smart person who figured out everything. And I'll tell you, I wouldn't be that smart if I grew up on an island. And this is a metaphor. I mean, it doesn't mean that individuals, you know, just living by themselves will do everything and figure out everything. But it was an idea that, you know, human mind by itself, even without revelation, can have a sense of the world and develop ethical values as well. Now, there is a, a turn in the story. Uh, a, a person comes to the island. is from another island, a civilization, where they have a religion, a sect, as we call it. His name is Apsal, and uh, he came just, you know, to see this island, and, and high sees him, and, you know, high is surprised. Who is this man who, you know, he's seen a human being for the first time. And they become friends, you know, they, uh, they communicate, and high tells all about his wisdom, and Apsal is amazed that a person without our religion actually has all this wisdom. And, and Apsal tells, well, we have this society there, and, you know, maybe you should go visit. And luckily, a ship comes, and, you know, with that, they go and visit the society. This is a religious society. Now, there are two interesting insights of Hai there. Hai looks into this religious society, looks into their teachings, and he says, oh, the teachings of reason and religion actually are in complete agreement with each other. So, you can come from the path of reason or religion to truth, and they are actually not in conflict. Now, that's a very strong line. He's saying something to us. But he says something else. He, he sees something else. He sees some of the people on the island, they're religious, but they're a little bit hypocritical. They're a little bit crude. They're not 100% into the moral values. So they could be religious, but maybe not enough moral in, in the way he thinks about it. So he gets a little bit disillusioned with that, and he goes back to his island, and he lives there until, and he worships God with his friend, Opsal. And the story ends there. Now, this was a novel, and it was trying to tell something. And you can see how it was 
actually quite interesting for Enlightenment philosophers who were you know, making the case of human reason and, and that you know, re reason and re re religion and revelation are two separate paths to truth. Uh, it is interesting that s among the big fans of the book that there, there were Quakers. Why that's interesting? Because Quakers was this Protestant sect who believed that there is an inward light in every human being. So even if people are not from our religion, that is Christianity, and even our sect of Christianity, uh, or in Islam, they could still be good people because they have an inward light, like they had a conscience. And they made a big emphasis on that, which made Quakers the champions of human rights in the centuries that go forward. Uh, abolition of slavery, women's rights, Amnesty International was found, founded by, led by you know, Quakers. Um, and, and they had a contribution to the world. Uh, it's interesting that a Catholic scholar translated the book, so I th apparently Catholics had seen a value in this, in this philosophy as well. But Ibn Tufail, who wrote this book, was not speaking to Enlightenment Europe. I mean, he didn't have that in mind. He didn't know that his book would become a bestseller in Europe five centuries later. He was writing for his fellow Muslims. And he was writing this at a time when philosophy had become a controversial matter in, in the Islamic world. Uh, because, again, a few decades before him, Imam al-Ghazali, uh, who is probably the greatest Sunni theologian of all times, had written this book in coherence of the philosophers. Uh, and there, he, on the one hand, he appreciated some of the ideas of philosophy, and actually he is rightfully credited for integrating some of their techniques into Sunni tradition, like logic. But on the other hand, he declared that because of the buy into Greek metaphysics, uh, on which I think Ghazal had a point, by the way, you know, Ibn Sina and Farabi, you know, they went into, bought in this idea of creation ex, uh, they, they believe in the creation ex nihilo, believed in the eternal universe, and they took uh, the rise of the dead, I mean, the resurrection as metaphorical, but not literal, for these reasons, he said they've gone out of Islam and they become they fell into kufr and so they become clandestine apostates, which you know there was already a ban on apostasy. So that there just came idea that people can pretend to be Muslim but their ideas might be heretical, so they can actually be apostates. So Ghazali had written this verdict, which was which made philosophy a controversial topic in in medieval Islam. And later, people who would, wouldn't even have the nuances of Ghazali would completely think that philosophy is delegitimate. And that's still a point of view you would come across in the Muslim world today. So Haibin Yaksan was a novel that was trying to say, whoa, 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 no, no, no. It's not. No, you, people can be philosophers, and they can be moral and virtuous people. And so reason in itself can lead to truth. And I personally don't think that reason can lead us to metaphysical truths, but I think the ethical emphasis was important. important. The, the emphasis that high could be an ethical person, even without religion, was, I think, a key point in, in the book. So he was writing this, but what is the broader story? This actually opens up a, a deeper discussion in Islam about the role of reason and revelation. I'll just give you a few highlights here. This issue of reason and revelation in Islam goes back to, of course, the Quran and Prophet Muhammad. I mean, when uh, Islam began in 7th century Arabia, Muslims had just a revelation and the example of the Prophet, and then they established a big civilization. And when they established a big civilization, they came across these different uh, traditions, different religious traditions and philosophical traditions, especially in Iraq, which was the most cosmopolitan 
end of the Islamic world at the time, Muslims came across, oh, these Greek philosophy preserved by Eastern Christians. And some questions came from Christians like, do you believe in predestination or not? Muslims never thought of that before, but that question triggered a discussion within Islam. Or there is an interesting discussion about the createdness of the Quran. Is Quran created or uncreated? Which may have and seems to have been uh, sparked by the Christian discussions on whether, whether Christ is you know, co-eternal with God or Christ is you know, uh, created. And uh, this is a complicated issue, but one issue that I think is important for fiqh, that's jurisprudence, is that Muslims discussed whether jurisprudence affirms Islamic jurisprudence, and that is the sharia, the interpretation of sharia, tells us about ethical values that humans could already know with their reason, or does it establish those values, and those values couldn't be known otherwise. So this is a key matter in Islamic jurisprudence, Islamic theology, which had big impact on jurisprudence. So I'll just quickly skip these the big disc discussions in early Islam is between Ahl al-Ray and Ahl al-Hadith. Ahl al-Ray are traditionalists, uh, rationalists in Islam in the sense that they gave authority, to, to, higher authority to human mind to make judgments, ethical judgments and jurisprudential judgments. Ahl al-Hadith were the textualists, represented by the uh, Ahl al-Ray, theologically represented by Mutazila, and Ahl al-Hadith uh, represented most uh, strictly by the Hanbalis. Uh, Asharites, represented the Ahl al-Hadith tradition by making some adjustments and adopting some rational tools of the Mutazila, but still affirming basic Hanbali uh, Akida creeds. And then you had the philosophers who went even further than Mutazila in buying into uh, reason, because the Mutazila were theologians, but not philosophers. Then you had the Maturidi school, which somewhere stood in between. Uh, that is uh, the generally school associated with the Hanafi school. Now. The issue of husn kubu, good or bad, that was the key issue here. Now I'll try to highlight a little bit. This is actually known in philosophical history, in the history of philosophy, as the Eudifro dilemma. Uh, you might be familiar with that. I mean, it goes back to a discussion between Socrates and uh, a man named Eudifro. They have this conversation. Like Socrates asked, like, what is piety? And Eudifro says, piety is what God's love. And then Socrates asks, like, do gods love somebody because he's pious, or does he become pious because he's loved by God? Now, this sparked a discussion in all religious traditions. I mean, in, let's say, Abrahamic traditions. First in Christianity, most notably, then in Islam. On whether the commandments of God teach us about ethical values that are out there, that are in nature, that human mind can understand, or those ethical values establish uh, or, or, or those ethical values are established by the Sharia, by the, God, by the commandments of God. In Islam, the two positions are there. The, the one that is called divine command theory, which means divine commands establish right and wrong, was one view, and the other one was ethical objectivism. The ethical objectivism is the view that to say, there are ethical values of right and wrong. The Sharia indicates them and reminds them and educates us about them, but they are there. Even if th there was no Sharia, even if we didn't have an access to Sharia, these values would exist and human mind could understand them. The divine command theory was 
championed by the theological school of Asharism, which is the mainstream, which became the mainstream uh, theological uh, view in Sunni Islam. Uh, one example, Asharite scholar Al-Bakiliani uh, in the early 11th century said, all acts are evil only because they are evil by way of revelation. If revelation did not make them evil, they would not be evil. The founder of the school, uh, Al-Ashari, also said, murder or theft are wrong because God said so. If he didn't say, if, it, if he said these are right, it would be right. So divine command establishes value. Uh, the other view is represented, I just took them because they're from the same uh, century and they reflect later uh, mature views in their traditions. Mutezlai scholar Abdul Jabbar, who said prohibition from the exalted God is an indication that something is evil as the indicator indicates the thing as it is, not that it becomes what it is by indication. So there are ethical values here, the Sharia indicates them. But even if it didn't indicate, they would be there. So divine command theory became dominant because of the victory of Asharism among the you know, landscape, in the landscape. How this happened, why this happened, is a long story that I get in my book. It, didn't, it doesn't mean ethical objectivism fully died. Maturidi theologists saved a little bit of that in, in the Sunni tradition. Uh, even among Hanbalis, some later Hanbalis, you see a few people that are actually giving right uh, to ethical objectivism and criticizing divine command theory. But that became the main dominant view. And to be fair, that divine command theory has been mitigated to some extent by the emphasis that even if uh, God's commandments establish right and wrong, God has purposes in the natural world so we can understand. So that led to the idea of makasid, the intentions of God. So, there were nuances. It's not black and white. Yet still, the divine command theory defines the main outlook to Islamic law in, in, in the Muslim world today to a great extent. And this has consequences. Now, two consequences I see as important and as problematic. One is loss of universalism because if you think only Sharia indicates ethical values, why would you learn anything ethically from people who don't have Sharia? What would Aristotle know? Well, Aristotle's actually ethics entered into the Islamic civilization thanks to the early openness. But it was naturalized and Muslims stopped actually, Muslim scholars stopped thinking about the ethical values out there. And that's why modern philosophy had very little influence. Muslim clergy today don't discuss utilitarianism versus Kantianism and beyond. What do they know? Sharia establishes it. So this, uh, a scholar who worked on this, Norwegian theologian, uh, Leverick, he says, the tension between divine command ethics and philosophical ethics in Islam overlaps with the one between revelation-based communitarianism and reason-based universalism. Well, revelation-based communitarianism says our, our religion gives us the values. The people who don't have this don't have the values, so we don't have to learn anything. We can get science, technology, but we're not going to engage in any uh, ethical conversation. That's why things like human rights, they don't mean anything for some scholars who are giving the fatwas on apostasy today, but that's what the kuffar invented, like the unbelievers. Why would they have any value? Where does it come from? 
You say conscience, well, what does that mean? I mean, because it doesn't have on epistemological value to establish uh, like ethical value. Now, this is something that drives the movement called Islamism in the modern world. I mean, Islamists are the people who think Muslims have nothing to learn from the world outside. We have our own tradition, our tradition has jurisprudence, and our political model, and this and that, and period. Uh, and like, I, I'll just quote one Islamist thinker who's you know, from my country, which I, uh, I mean, he was actually a very polite and great man, and may he rest in peace. But Nejmetin Arbakan, you know, he was the pioneer of Turkish Islamist movement. And he has this very interesting line, I mean, in one of his books that I found in Turkish. He says, reason without Islam on its own cannot tell good from evil. Hence, there is no source of justice or truth outside of Islam. That is why, I mean, Nejmetin Arbakan's political movement always championed, you know, abandoning European process, uh, giving up this nonsense called liberal democracy, going back to our old Ottoman system, whatever that it was, although the Ottomans themselves actually towards the end the, you know, moved towards liberal democracy with Tanzimat reforms. Uh, and by the way, as a political comment, Nejmetin Arbakan's students claim to have abandoned this worldview in the early 2000s, but apparently they're reverting back these days, so that explains some of the problems in Turkey today. But anyway, this idea of rejecting what is from the outside, it leads to tribalism. And that's why I think we have a problem here and we have to solve it. And why wouldn't there should be any justice or truth outside of Islam? Interesting, you can make the argument that there is. Prophet Muhammad, when Muslims were persecuted, tell them to go to the just kingdom of Abyssinia, which was not based on the Sharia. It was a Christian kingdom. He said, but there's a just king and go there. So you can well make the argument that there's justice outside of Islam, but a divine command theory, theology plus political attitude uh, sharpened by anti-colonialism, understandably, uh, or identity politics these days leads to the loss of universalism. The other one, the other problem is textualism. Because if you don't have a value outside of the Sharia, you cannot look back at the text and wrestle with it. Right? You have to obey the text. Uh, that leads to the second problem, literalism in jurisprudence. Now, this is a vast topic, and uh, the literalist approach to text, I mean, there are many scholars who are criticizing this, there are many examples of this. I'll just give you one example, which is also a timely one, as you might be hearing on the news. Uh, you may have heard that in Saudi Arabia, women were not allowed to drive cars for a long time, right? And finally, they were allowed, and it was a big reform, and the authoritarian prince who allowed that became a champion of liberalism, supposedly, although he, Chops journalists who uh, criticize him and to death and also or, uh, jails his opponents. Anyway, this woman being allowed to drive a car, would be, why, but why was an issue? Now, Taliban came to power recently, as we know, in Afghanistan. And one worry is that will they allow women to go on the streets by themselves? The Taliban is saying, no, we were too harsh in the 90s. Now, we were not allowing women to walk on the street without a male guardian. Now we will be more gentler. That's nice. And like what? Well, they will not be going out of the town, of course, but they can walk in the streets. So, okay, that's a progress. But where does this come from? Like, what is this idea that women should not go alone by themselves? And, well, it comes from a, a few hadiths, sayings of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that you find in Sahih al-Bukhari, which is the most authentic uh, hadith uh, tradition. Although I don't believe that everything that's in Sahih al-Bukhari is 100% authentic, but, you know, there's a strong thrust in Sahih al-Bukhari. 
So you have these two hadiths which says, actually I can read from here. The Prophet said, it's not permissible for a woman who believes in Allah in the last day to travel for one day and night except without a mahram. Mahram is what they translate as a male guardian, like someone, like a husband or brother or, uh, or a father. Another version, actually, this is a version of the hadith. It says, a woman should not travel for more than three days except with the, the mahram. That's owner of mahram. That's a, another male term for the same thing. Male guardian. So these, are t these texts are there. So... Uh, our jurists in the classical era calculated what is three days and they came up with measures like 48 miles, 45 miles, some of them did put a bit more and they said this is the, of course this was calculated by camel or horse ride and you know that sort of thing. So today if you look into the fatwa universe you will see like scholars in the UK saying that of course so that's written that's the Hanafi you know uh, or Hanbali law a woman should not travel without a mahram for 48 miles. So is the difference between London and Birmingham 48? It's more than that, so no, no, no. So it's there, it's still obeyed. Now, another way of looking into this is that, and Turkish scholars are making this point, other scholars are making this point. Well, the Prophet Muhammad said this for, for, uh, for the obvious reason that 7th century Arabia very, was a very dangerous place, that between cities, there was a desert which had the raids and the bandits and any unprotected woman without a male guardian, without, a, without someone who used a sword and males didn't do that. Uh, sorry, females didn't do that. They would, she, it's, it was something about a dangerous context. No wonder there's an, uh, there's an other hadith where the prophet says, you will see that one day the world will be safe, that a woman will be able to have hajj from this per, to, to, to Kaaba from a certain location. So he's speaking about a world that the world will be safer. So if you take that, you understand that his concern was security. And he said something in a certain context. Now this is a, a non-literalist approach to text. And some scholars are making this. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll grant that. Some Sunni scholars today are saying that, yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that was the intention. That was the hikmah, the wisdom behind that. But there are also many others, which I quote in the book, which say, well, the wisdom, the hikmah, behind this ruling could be protection of women, and now the context might have changed, but we are obliged by the text. We have to do this even as a hukm ta'abudi, that is a, a, an act of worship, even if we don't see the physical, I mean, actual wisdom right now. There are people who say that, and I, I quote that. And, and of course, they say this, and that's fine, I mean, you can believe that, but once you impose it on others, you bring an additional problem. And you can say that, as a woman, I shouldn't travel more than eight, eight files. I respect that. That's your religious opinion. I, I can have a conversation about it. But, but of course, when you implement it, as the Taliban does and will do again, uh, and not just this, but on other issues on, on uh, women's participation in society. So, so, but how do we get out of this? Like, well, you get out of this because you understand the text has a context and you understand you're in a different world, and you understand there's change, and then you can look back. But this, this requires something other than the text itself. This requires a sense of justice. This requires a sense of reasonableness. Like, I mean, God's intention could not have been to put a woman in Birmingham and not being able to go to London where she has a sick mother and without a male mahram she can do it. So, it needs a reasonableness. Now, the thing is, do we have that sort of approach in Islam? We have 
And I think it's time to revive that. It's past time to revive that. And I see this in most interestingly and uh, radically in the, the in the writings of one of the great minds of our Islamic uh, civilization, who is Ibn Rushd, known in the West as Averroes. Uh, now, this is the connection, by the way, to Hayy bin Yaksan. I told you about the story of Hayy bin Yaksan. Who wrote Hayy bin Yaksan? Ibn Tufail. Ibn Tufail was also the person who gave a job to Ibn Rushd and brought him to the Almohad court because Ibn, Ibn, Ibn Rushd was a judge, jurist, but also a young, aspiring philosopher. And Ibn Tufail told the emir, there's a smart guy here, so let's employ him, and they did. And Ibn Rushd said, I'm too old, you should write these commentaries on Aristotle that the caliph was asking for. So Ibn Rushd is, in a sense, his student. So we read the novel from the teacher. Let's go to the student and what he said. And what he said is interesting because he didn't just write a novel. He didn't write a novel. He wrote these massive commentaries on Aristotle, which I'm sure every Thomist would know <laughs> Because if, you're, if you know St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, he, he refers to uh, the commentator who was Averroes hundreds of times. And, and he actually brought Aristotle back into Europe, his writings. And he's famous for that. You know? Everybody knows that Aristotle, Averroes was this great philosopher. Okay, he's great, he's famous for that, but there's more to him. With that philosophical thinking, he looked back into Sharia and he said very interesting things. Uh, he said things about natural law. Now we see this in the writings. Here is his statue. I had the chance to visit him uh, in Cordoba. In one of his writings, and in, his, in philosophical writings, rather than his directly uh, jurisprudential book on jurisprudence, Bidayat al-Mushtahid, he has books on commentaries on Aristotle, and there he says things you know, that are not everyone will get, but very interesting. He says in one passage, Laws are two kinds. Some are particular and others are general. Particular laws are written laws, al-sunnah al-gab maktuba, which are specific to each people or each community. So, sharia is something like that, right? I mean, fiqh at least is something like that. It's written, it's specific to Muslims. It's a written law. So this is one kind of law. As for the general laws, they're unwritten laws. Al-Sunan al-Gayr Maktuba. Unwritten. These are not written. Where they're written? Which are acknowledged by all people, such as filial piety and thanking the benefactor. Like you know by nature that you should be, you should be respectful to your parents and you should be thankful to the benefactor. Which was an example used by the Mutazila, by the way, to make the case that there is reason outside of Islam. That's how we know Islam is true, right? Because if there is no reason outside of Islam, how do you make the argument in the first place? So Ibn Rushd is using the same idea. Unwritten laws are those that are in the nature of all people. These are what all people consider just or unjust by nature, although they have no explicit stipulation or contract among one another. I think students of natural law can find this very familiar. So when we have these two things, we have the written laws and we have the unwritten laws, what, have to, what should we do? Ibn Rush says, no one can, first says, he says something else. He says, no one can lay down universal and general laws according to all people of all times and places. Now, this is very interesting. He doesn't say God cannot do it, but he says no one cannot do it. And actually that refers to the lawgiver in Islam because the Prophet Muhammad could not have said something 
that will be safe for the women of Medina and Mecca, that will be relevant for the women of Birmingham and London today as well. It's just, it's just human society changes, context changes. So he says, no one can write general laws that are always relevant for all people at all times. So what we should do, since written laws neither apply to every individual nor every time and every place, they're not sufficient to determine the good and bad in the conduct of every human individual. So since these are not universal, Husserl and Kupf, they can't define it good and bad all the time. So what we should do, so this calls for addition and subtraction from the written, law, the written laws according to what is required by the unwritten law. So he's basically saying the written laws of our jurisprudence should be checked by the unwritten laws, that is natural law, that is things that are in human nature, like in human values, uh, compassion, filial piety, uh, thanking the benefactor. And he ex expands on those. So he basically makes the argument that natural law should be a check on fiqh. That is and his job as a fiqh. And in some of his uh, jurisprudence, we see that he actually called for, uh, there was a theft case and he called against, he called for the sultan not to implement the, the punishment of amputation and called for hilm, that is gentleness, which was a way he actually exemplified how they did that. He also had a few interesting comments on a few interesting issues. One was on the issue of jihad. Uh, in Ibn Rushd's time, there was the idea that jihad is defensive but also aggressive. Like you can go conquer lands. I should say that this is actually much of a passe idea today. Today, most Muslims in the world, conservative, many conservatives too, will say jihad is just defensive. But in the imperial era, Muslims didn't think that it was defensive. That's how they conquered from Spain to India, right? I mean, the Ottomans went all the way to Vienna. If they could go, they could more. But this idea of aggressive, uh, let's say expansionist jihad. Ibn Rush says something very interesting about that. He says, on the matter of war in the law of Muslims, the command in it regarding war is, in ge war is general until they uproot and destroy entirely whoever disagrees with them. But there are times when peace is more choice worthy than war. Yet the Muslim public requires this generality, like this idea of expansion and conquest. Despite the impossibility of destroying and uprooting their enemies entirely, they attain in this great harm. So they want this, but they fall into harm because of this. This is ignorance on their part of the intention of the legislator. Well, legislator is God, so they don't understand the God's intention. And how do you know God's intention? Well, God could not have demanded harm. That's not, he couldn't have willed destruction. And since war causes destruction, it's not what God could have wanted. So these people, these cheering for conquest don't get the point, and they misunderstand the intention of legislator. This was a text that we know thanks to translations from Hebrew. Uh, I got it from uh, Noah Feldman, who wrote a uh, dissertation uh, on Ibn Rushd, and then it, it was picked up by other authors. Uh, why it doesn't have the Arabic version, I'll come back to that because we have some of the books of Ibn Rushd not in uh, Arabic, but Hebrew or Latin. Uh, on women's role in society, Ibn Rushd had very interesting things to say. Uh, he, here he was inspired by not Aristotle, with great respect to the great Aristotle, who was not great on women, but on Plato, who actually more, uh, f uh, let's say, egalitarian muse. Plato wrote that women actually have the same intellectual capacity with men. They're just, you know, conventionally they are maybe not given certain jobs or not, but they are not less smart than men. So he made this point. Ibn Rushd was persuaded by this. 
And he then said, in these states though, the Muslim states he's speaking about, the intellectual ability of women is not known because they are only taken for procreation there. They are therefore placed at the service of their husbands and relegated to the business of procreation, rearing and breastfeeding, but this undoes their other activities, activities of scholarship and entrepreneurship and uh, learning and other intellectual activities. That they are a burden upon the men in these states is one of the reasons for the poverty of these states. He's speaking about the Muslim world of his time. They're found there in twice the number of men, because men have wars all the time, while at the same time they do not, through training, support any of the necessary activities except for a few, like spinning and weaving. All this is self-evident. So basically he was criticizing the fact that uh, although women have the same intellectual capacity with men, they're seen as like less smart and given just the job of raising children. And this was, he say, is a reason for the poverty of these states. Which is exactly what now people will happen in Afghanistan when Taliban puts women back into their homes uh, or you know, minimizes their uh, chances for education. I wish they read Ibn Rushd on this, but I, I doubt. Uh, there's another interesting line about Ibn Rushd, which I learned from, it's not actually, I, you couldn't find it in any of his writings that we know, but I learned from Rabbi Sachs, who we lost uh, last year or two years ago, he passed away. Great, you know, former chief rabbi of Britain, uh, and who was a great public intellectual. Uh, rabbi Sachs wrote about Ibn Rushd in one of his books in an interesting way. Uh, it, he quoted a statement by Ibn Rushd, which later influenced Jewish tradition. In this statement, which we cannot find actually anywhere of the Ibn Rushd you know, literature that we know, Ibn Rushd reportedly said, you should always, when presenting a philosophical argument, cite the views of your opponents. Failure to do so is an implicit acknowledgement of the weakness of your own case. Now, this was an unusual approach because at the time there was the idea that if, you're heret if these people are heretics, don't give much air time to these people. Actually, Ahmed ibn Hanbal is known for criticizing a fellow Hanbalite who wrote a book against the Mutazila. Why are you writing about the heretics? You say they're heretics, but you still cite their views. What if people fall for them? So I mean, and that was most societies thought that way. Still, maybe many people think like that, that way on campuses sometimes in the world. Um, but Ibn Rush said something different. No, you should actually quote them, give them fair share, and that is your own strength. Otherwise, you will be showing your weakness. And which he did, by the way. He, in this Tahafut, because uh, is. He's rejoined to Ghazali. He says, Ghazali says this, like you read Ghazali for a page long, and then he says what he says. Now this approach to knowledge uh, influenced, as Rabbi Sachs wrote, Rabbi Yudah Lov, Love, or Love, I'm sorry about that. He wrote about this, he quoted Averroes in a, a few centuries later. He says, Averroes' words hold true for religion as well. It's not proper that we despise the words of our adversaries, but rather we must draw them as close as we can. Therefore, it's proper out of love of reason and knowledge that you should not summarily reject anything that opposes your own ideas, especially if your adversary does not intend merely to provoke you, but rather to declare his beliefs. Even if such beliefs are opposed to your own faith and religion, do not say, speak not, close your mouth. On the contrary, you should say at times, speak up as much as you want, say whatever you wish, and do not 
say later that you had been able, you had not been able, if you had able to speak, you would have replied further. Sorry, I can't read it. Uh, my eyes are getting, I'm, uh, it shows me I'm getting old. This is the opposite of what some people think, namely that when you prevent someone from speaking against religion, that strengthens religion. This is not so because curbing the words of an opponent in religious matters is nothing but the curbing and enfeebling of religion itself. Uh, Rabbi Yudah Löwe wrote this in the 17th century, and Jonathan Sachs uh, quoted him, emphasizing that the idea came from Ibn Rushd. And he also uh, showed how later John Stuart Mill might have been influenced by the writings of Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Löwe. Uh, now, curbing the verse of an opponent in religious matter is nothing but the curbing and enfeebling of religion itself. That's not what you know, the uh, Saudi religion police or the Iranian regime or the Taliban these days or the Malaysian religious police thinks. They think that you should ban these books. That's why my book was banned in Malaysia, by the way. I don't know what's going to happen with this one. And that is because that's even not, I'm not against religion, I'm just trying to offer an alternative interpretation on certain issues. Uh, let alone, I mean, I, I know one thing on that and just one finally. In my 20s, I was fascinated by apologetics of Islam, like writing critiques against atheism and showing that there is a God and, you know, uh, criticizing scientific materialism. And I got onto internet. Internet was new at the time. There was Netscape. I don't know if you remember. And I made a lot of research in, on these issues. And I wanted to find books written against atheists. Well, there was great literature by Ibn Rushd or Imam Ghazali, too, in our classical era. Ghazali is actually cosmological argument is being used by now some Christian theologians. But there was no nothing new literature. You know, I mean, Richard, I wanted to find critiques of Richard Dawkins. Well, it came from Oxford or Notre Dame, maybe, or you know, Western Christians, mostly Christians, maybe some Jews. And I said, like, why don't Saudi scholars write anything about that? Well, they have a better, easier solution. They just ban the book and you know, put the people who write about it in jail. So which means that you're not becoming intellectually actually sophisticated. And I think the great strength of the great Islamic civilization was that precisely because it was open to uh, contributions of humanity and, and, and the challenges too, we had more dynamism. And today, uh, I think we're at a time that we have to make these arguments uh, very, very clearly. Uh, and because uh, Islamic world is not using its full potential in terms of women's rights, in terms of religious freedom, and there are troubling interpretations. The change will come when we find within our own selves, within our own roots, and connecting them with the global achievements of humanity. And I think there are, there are a lot of roots in Islamic tradition, like these forgotten uh, words of Ibn Rushd. One thing I'll say is that the reason why we don't have some of the statements I just read in original Arabic, but in Hebrew, is that unfortunately Ibn Rushd was declared a heretic towards the end of his life uh, by people who blamed him for being a worshiper of Venus because he quoted a Greek philosopher who was worshiping Venus. It's kind of like, uh, you know, retweets are not endorsements, but thought as endorsements sort of thing. So he was canceled. Um, and uh, and a few of his manuscripts on philosophical books we know were burnt in, uh, in, in, in Cordoba, and he was banished in uh, house prison for a while. At the end, the caliph actually took him out, but he was too old, and he passed away in, in, in Morocco. Uh, and 
he had more impact, interestingly, on the Christian and Jewish traditions uh, than Islam. And he's just one of the pearls of wisdom, you know, we can just go back and find. So my book is about those kind of approaches in Islam that have not been highlighted enough that are coming out actually recently uh, in, in academia. And I owe to academics like Feri Al-Buhaha or Karen uh, Talifiero, who's actually been studying in Nourish lately. It's just there. We have to go read it, and we should have an open mind, and, and we should not allow the religious police forces around the world or secular police forces you know, to, uh, to force us to close our minds. That's the point of my book, and hope uh, if, you, if you can take a look, hope you will find more interesting things in it. And here's I should stop. Thank you so much. A uh, few minutes for questions. We have a tradition in the program where we ask uh, or allow one of our undergraduate students to ask the first questions. Questions? Please, yeah. I actually read the book. Oh, Hi Binyaksan, you read it? Yeah, I read it. Wow, you're one of the chosen, yeah, like <laughs> special. Well, I plan to. F okay, question. First of all, amazing that I mean you read Haibin Yaksan. Uh, thank you for your contribution. You're saying he 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 was solitude solitude yeah. solitary. He had a solitary life. He was by himself. He went to society, and he got disillusioned with it, and he went back to his life. I plan to do the same. I'm kidding. <laughs> At some point, I'm, I'm kidding. Not in the modern world, but uh, I mean. In the modern world, of course, we can go to different islands, right? You can change a country, which you know some of us sometimes have to do, uh, and you can change, you know, your location, and you can uh, just if a community is really oppressive and not understanding, you can step out. I mean, I that was, I mean, there is a ascetic spiel like theme in Ibn Yaksan as well as alone. I think it reflects the sadness of the philosopher in that society who is fed up with all these kufr accusations and all that kind of stuff. And that was mostly in actually in the central lens of Islam and Baghdad and uh, that, that, and that actually culminated more after that. But this kind of, I'm telling you, you don't understand me, okay, I'll just go alone by myself. But he left a legacy, I mean, he wrote a novel. So I think the, the frustration of Haib uh, Yaksan a little bit reflects the frustration of Ibn Tufail himself. They could survive when a caliph was generous enough to give them space and jobs to work. And that was mostly because, you know, philosophy included medical healing. So, you know, rulers needed that sort of, right, a doctor. And, and they also wrote on the side philosophical treaties. I mean, that's what I can read into that book. But what, what is to me most interesting from an Islamic jurisprudential and theological point of view is that you have the story of a human being who is not a Muslim, Who's not who's a deist maybe because he doesn't have a religion, but who's virtuous and ethical, and that that in itself, and that ethics uh, actually is in agreement with the ethics of religion, but maybe he could be better than the religious people themselves because those people might be maybe too crude and not being fulfilling the teachings of 
uh, the, the religious tradition. Okay, next question. Uh, yeah, Ben, come in. Hi, well, thank you so much for your speech. Um, one thing I was really interested in was when you were talking about um, like the threat of the par uh, a parallel to natural law in Islam, that kind of thought, you know, we can reason our way to ethics, and like that's why God commands in the first place, if I understood that correctly. Um, you know, whether there's a Quran or not a Quran, we can kind of know certain things just by virtue of being human. Uh, that, was that was really interesting to me, um, because I know that in Catholicism, there's kind of a similar narrative sometimes, where um, we use natural law and say that, you know, all humans can kind of come to certain conclusions just by virtue of being human. Um, but there's certain times where, at least in the Catholic times, um, in the Catholic aspect, uh, the church will advance an idea, such as, for example, a gender binary, if there's only two genders, and say this is universal. Um, and that's not true. I mean, it, it just isn't. Um, it might be like the church's prerogative to say so, but other cultures might come to different conclusions that there's more than two genders or, you know, whatever. So with, with this thread specifically in Islam, how do you kind of separate um, cultural formation and just cultural norms from our own reason and our own ethics that we come to? You know, how do you kind of make those two separations between like truth and, and ethics and, and culture? Well, that's a great question. And I think that's a challenge for anybody who believes in natural law or universality. And I think it's fair to say that universalism, universal liberalism and human rights, in part have been shaped by, clouded by Western biases and uh, double standards or even just natural inclinations, right? I mean. Uh, which, which is a reason to me for think of some Islamic liberalism, so we develop our own and, you know, we can come to agreement, but you might have nuances that are important. Uh, also, let's not forget that everybody who championed natural law in history did not always do the great things. In, in it. I mean, some people justified uh, persecution or forced conversion with references, but, but it grew, but it's, it evolved. And, by, by, and I think empathy is a key here sometimes. Like you, to, to, there are groups that are outside and you see them as a misguided, but if you were in their shoes, how do you look at that? So that, that, that feeling adds a lot to natural law perspective. Here's one thing. I think the key here is to respect other human beings with their basic human rights and to and they defend their human rights. In the meantime, I think every religious tradition or other worldview can say, according to our tradition, these are the ethical norms of sexuality or family or this and that. Like on blasphemy, I'll, like I mean, I, I don't like the fact that some people disrespect, disrespect my prophet, right? I'll say I don't approve this. But I will not justify any attacks or persecution of that person. I'll say, well, that's what you think. And actually, I'll find the basis for the Quran itself. On sexual matters, I think religious traditions can say, this is what we think as normative from our religious, religious point of view. This is what we believe at marriage is. They have the right to say that. They have the right to thrive in that. I mean, they have to propagate or share that view without hatred, without persecution, without saying this way is wrong. On the particular issue of sexuality and, and gen, uh, homosexuality or you know, bi non-binary, let's uh, sexual, this is what I think. But I also, I would call on every religious thinker to think, well, let's see why people feel that way, right? I mean, if God created human beings in a certain way, uh, is God punishing them for feeling it in a certain way? So that's a good theological question that every religious community, I think, should do, especially in the modern age on, on these gender issues. But the bottom line is we should respect our human rights. I mean, I don't think certain ways of life or philosophies are uh, good. 
but I respect them as fellow human beings, and, and, and I expect the same. And I'm sure like atheists think that we believers are you know, superstitious, crazy people. I think Richard Dawkins think like that, right? You know. Uh, but I want to live in the same society with him and you know, disagree on that. So that's a philosophical distinction. In terms of lifestyle, too, uh, I personally believe in traditional marriage. That's what I believe in as a value. But I will not you know, demonize people who have different ways. Uh, and I think that's what maybe natural law can mean in this sense. Uh, hi, thank you for being here. Um, in parts of the Muslim world, I guess particularly in like West Africa, I'm thinking of, um, there are significant sects of Islam that are fairly tolerant to other religions. Um, I believe it's Sufism. Yep. Um, and so I guess what I'm wondering is, do you see that sort of like religious tolerance being possible in a place like Saudi Arabia, for example, that you mentioned, where there's like high capacity government? interests against having that sort of religious tolerance. Like how do you start to go towards establish that for other religions and that sort mm -hmm. of tolerance in other parts of the Muslim world? Sure. You say there are tolerant Islam in West Africa, you particularly emphasize that. So can something like that take place in Saudi Arabia? Uh, well, first of all, thank you. Your question actually highlights a broader fact, which is that the Islamic world is quite diverse. And I actually wrote a report for the Cato Institute, Freedom in the Muslim World. Like it was based on data on religious freedom and freedom of speech and freedom of movement and women's rights. And look at the whole Muslim world, how they measure against each other. The freest area is the Balkans. So Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Albania are the freest Muslim majority states. You don't have any limitations on religious practice or freedom of speech or women's rights. West Africa was the second good. <laughs> part of the Ummah, that is uh, places like Burkina Faso, although there are now jihadi groups and some threats there. What happened in West Africa, which is a good historical development, is that uh, classical Islamic interpretations enriched by Sufism, which made it less textual, also mingled with some local customs and became tolerant, and it really is a great tradition there. Uh, what happened in the past 50 years in the Muslim world is this kind of, there are real Islam bringers <laughs> coming from most of Wahhabi Saudi Arabia saying that, no, no, you guys are all misguided, so we're being the real thing to you. Like Bosnians are horrified by the number of these new people who are bringing them an Islam that actually they don't know. What is that? I mean, theirs is more cultural and tolerant and, and you know, liberal in the, in the good sense of the term. And it doesn't mean non-observant, but not non-coercive sense of the term. Uh, well, will that happen in Saudi Arabia? Well. Every Muslim society changes, and they're changing by their own standards. Like, even Saudi Arabia has changed. Uh, I mean, people are focusing on this new, uh, some of the social changes that's going on, which is okay, but I'm worried about the political direction, so that's political oppression. I mean, Saudi Arabia banned slavery, which was there until 1962. So, I mean, already certain things have happened, but, but the, the pace of the modern world and, and the universalism of human rights, and the pace of change in Saudi Arabia is quite so different, and you, you, it doesn't change. I think uh, that's the toughest place to change, honestly, Saudi Arabia, because of the clergy. And when the, what, the other problem is that when clergy is put aside and their religious interpretations are put aside, that let's say you have a more secular order, 
you also have no guarantee that that will be a nice secularism. Right? I mean, we've seen also secular oppression. Uh, and, and that secularism also becomes a mirror image. I mean, these guys ban, uh, impose hijab, the Islamists, um, the seculars come and ban hijab. So we've seen that in Turkey. We've seen that during the Shah in Iran. Uh, that's why I believe in uh, trying to promote a political liberalism where the rulers are constrained by law uh, and laws are universalized and made you know, compatible with human rights. And people have the right to be pious as they want, and, and, but other groups in society are respected and minorities are respected. Will this happen in Saudi Arabia in a few years? I mean, I don't think so. Uh, in Iran, if the regime collapses somehow, you can expect big changes because Iran is a society greatly fed up with this regime already. So there are people who are more openness. Turkey is going through a whole other direction and uh, not towards the direction of Saudi Arabia, Russia, but Saudi Arabia, but Russia more so, unfortunately. Uh, hopefully it will not go that far, but you know, we can. So it's, it's all diverse, but speaking of religious uh, convictions, uh, there are good and bad news. Uh, and it's just not possible to say, oh, this is nice in Burkina Faso, why don't the Saudis you know, get it that way? Because part of cultural, I and mean, actually Saudis think we should convert you, right? So that's actually the part of the problem of the resurgence of Wahhabism and the influence of it had both in Africa and uh, the Southeast Asia and you know Pakistan, India, the subcontinent as well. I wonder if I might get a question about the. Um, as I mentioned, I've been uh, reading uh, "Reopening Muslim Minds," which I highly recommend to everyone. Uh, I'm curious about the reception of the book. Um, are there different demographics that uh, are more appreciative of the book? Other demographics that might be more critical? How is it being receptive by the young? Sure. Uh, first of all, people ask me about the young people, and I'll say, well, they go in all different ways. <laughs> I mean, there are young people who are pretty militant and radicalized, and young people that are very open-minded and liberal. So there are all kinds of uh, trends in, in the youth in the Muslim world today. How my book has been received? Well, it came out in April so far. I got pretty good reviews, and I got, many, got into many events in countries like Malaysia, Pakistan, Indonesia, Tunisia. Uh, Turkey, uh, and a Bosnian edition is coming soon, very soon, an Italian edition is on the way, and, and Malay and Urdu and Indonesian editions are being discussed. So the book will be out there, and I got you know, good reviews in, besides Western newspapers, I mean, in the Muslim world as well. So who are those people who like this book? Generally, the people who like the message in the book are Muslims who are actually living in Muslim-majority societies, like Pakistan or Malaysia or Indonesia, and who can speak English because it's in English, so there's a language thing there. And who are loyal to their religion, but who are unhappy with the, some of the attitudes they see among the orthodoxy or, or the oppressive interpretations of religion. So they need something that, like, we are Muslims, but what is this? I mean, we don't want to live this way, like the misogyny or that sort of, like, or, like, let's say, bigotry towards the non-Muslims. So that's an audience. Uh, many Western Muslims like it too, but other Muslims in the West are maybe more concerned with uh, more concerned with problems in Western society. Uh, I can't blame them, you know, like anti-Muslim bigotry and so on and so forth. So that's that. That is, I mean, I'm with them there, but that sometimes make some Muslims not be, being critical of anything within Islam, like. 
Don't give us any ammunition. So don't expose these problems sort of thing attitude, which I understand, but I think it's not the right way to go. We have to be honest about our issues and talk openly everywhere. And then there are others who say, who the hell are you? Like, you're not an Imam Sheikh and says, like, who is this guy? Like, and I say, I'm not anything. Yeah, but I'm referring to Ibn Rushd and Abu Hanifa, and, you know, I'm referring to Ibrahim Musa, or, you know, like all the great shuyukh of our uh, modern or pre modern or Fazl Rama. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a religious authority. I'm just a public writer, religious writer, but, but I'm, I'm advocating a certain point of view. But I never say I, I have a fatwa authority or ijtihad or something. I'm saying, well, it is there, actually, you know, but just why it's not the mainstream view. Well, you, you guys suppressed it because that's not the mainstream view. And there was a political reason for it. So that's the kind of approach. And uh, it's, it's all kinds of ways. I mean, I got into debates with some more conservative scholars. One is one was with uh, Owa Miranjum, who's a friend and respected scholar. And it, I, I appreciated him. He was still quite you know, critical on some of the issues. And uh, the accusation is that you are kind of trying to leave certain things that are, are in our religion to say this is historical. Like you, how, how do you choose this? Like I ask, like, how did you choose slavery? Like, how did we end up saying slavery is not Islamic? It wasn't the Sharia. It wasn't the Fiqh. It, Islamic slavery was milder. I mean, it, Islam had mitigated it, gave rights to slaves at a time that life for slaves were much worse probably in the transatlantic you know, uh, universe. But it was there, so we accepted that. So how did we accept that? Well, we accepted that it wasn't the intention of God or the prophet. It was just there when Islam came and uh, the intention was to abolish it. That's good. So, and when did we realize that intention? When this boogeyman liberalism came and you know, tried to burn this idea. So if it had that transition there, why can't we do it on minority rights or women's rights? Uh, so this is the kind of approach. And I'm sure things will change. Uh, and there are ups and downs. And I think this is an interesting century for our ummah, I mean, for the Islamic world, the 21st century. I mean, it's a bit like, uh, it's a bit like when John Locke was writing about these issues that some people think it's freedom or tolerance is a good idea. Others think, no, 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 you cannot allow the heretics and uh, um, uh, I mean, apostates, you know, roam free. And the Christian problems were deeper. I mean, some, I mean the the violence of the 30 years war and everything, that was a big issue there. And uh, it, 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 it was overcome by Christians who are loyal to their religious tradition, but who also saw the value of liberty and found it in its roots. I mean, I'm deeply impressed by Locke in the very fact that he goes and quotes the Bible and says, what you're saying is not in there, right? In Islam, Textualism is more complicated than that, but it's basically it's the same argument what we need to do today, saying that, well, it's not what God intended, and this is history. Divine rights of kings, it's not in the Quran. Like, and similarly, obey the ruler, whatever he does, and I don't. I mean, I, I, have a con I will have a contract with the ruler. And, uh, sorry. Before we conclude, um, uh, tell us about the sequel. Uh, what's the oh, next project? Yeah. the sequel? Yeah. What it comes after this? Yeah, what's your next project? Here? Oh, by the way, I just have a new book, yeah. a new one, Why, as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty. The cool thing about it is that you can download it pre free as PDF by the Cato Institute. It's actually a summary of some of the ideas of freedom. That includes economic freedom and uh, liberty and freedom of speech. So it's a, these books are different, so you read both if you want. Uh, but this is more philosophical than a deeper discussion. That's a more kind of easy digestible 
thing uh, at Cato, at libertarianism.org, which is a project of the Cato Institute, why as a Muslim I defend liberty, it's there. Another book which I can announce now, I think, is, uh, this is off the record, although it's on the record, but it's just, you know. anyway, it's nothing, I mean, the next book project will be titled, uh, maybe you might have heard that I have a book called Islamic Jesus. The next book is titled The Islamic Moses, A Brief History of the Judeo-Islamic Tradition. Because I think uh, Islam and Judaism has so much in common, and actually a good history compared to uh, some bad histories out there until the modern era. So this book will walk through that history, will also bring some uh, parallels between Moses Mendelssohn and Jewish Enlightenment and how our perceptions of uh, reform today in Islam. So that will be the next book project. But that's at least a year and a half for that. Yeah. Well, we'll hope you'll come back and present it. Inshallah. As we say that. Thank you so much. Uh, please uh, join me. Thank you. 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 Thank you.